You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Let's get our Bibles open to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 3. It's where we are, and this is our final letter in our series, A Word for the Church. For least Navidad, classic, classic. Anyways, a word for the church here. This is our seventh letter, our seventh church, and therefore our seventh message in this series called A Word for the Church. I want to recap where we've been just to remind you. Here's our series outline going back to the beginning of November. Uh, A letter to those lacking in love. That's the church in Ephesus. A letter to those suffering that was Smyrna for the cause of Christ. And then we saw in Pergamum a letter to the faithful, sort of, kind of, not really, almost. And we saw elements of good and bad there. Very serious letter to the church in Thyatira, to the sexually immoral. Um, awful things were happening there. Uh, the, to the, to the, a letter to the spiritually dead uh, happening in the church um, of Sardis. Again, the seriousness. Remember, these are all the words that Jesus has for the church. In some ways, again, impacting the church in the first century, but also in some ways describing the church over the last 20 centuries, and in many ways describing where we are today as well, of course, the church uh, right now. A letter to the persevering last week, that was to be a sermon of encouragement. I do not give up, keep going, I walk with the Lord, he sees all things. And then today we see this, we see a letter now uh, to the lukewarm, focusing on the church um, in Laodicea. And today's message is also a very important one as well. Again, not a super easy one, um, but again, nonetheless, a very important one. So um, today we have a letter, again, to the lukewarm. This is, this is for me, important. This is yet another text um, where Jesus is in the pursuit of his people uh, so that they might be in pursuit of him. Jesus is pursuing his people again through this passage. He's coming after the church that's lukewarm because in the end, he wants his church to be pursuing him, okay? So again, get ready, okay? Get ready because Jesus is coming after you again in love. Uh, Jesus is coming after your heart and mine, this church's heart today uh, in love because he will not let us stray and go off into the spiritual ditch. He loves us too much to let us do that. Uh, Here's one of the realities here today. Uh, There's some people who are lukewarm across this church right now for sure. It's just, it's just the stats. Uh, could be in the dozens, could be in the hundreds. I don't know. I'm not God. He does. Uh, this is a word for individuals. This is a word for the church, the church today, this church and the church as a whole. Uh, Jesus is not okay with us being lukewarm. And that's the first thing we need to understand. And he's going to call us to something greater and higher, uh, something deeper. So with that being said, uh, here is the letter to the church in Laodicea, a letter to the lukewarm. It says this in verse 14, Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, uh, the words of the Amen, a faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus says this, I know your works. Uh, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Uh, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, um, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing. Isn't that so true in our day? Isn't that so true? How many people, how many times we are tempted to think, I got it all, man. I don't need anything. I'm rich. I got my stuff. I got myself. I got my security. I don't need anything. This is the plague upon Western society. Uh, Jesus addresses this right here. Uh, Not realizing, though, so you say you have everything. You say you are rich. You say you are prospering. 
You say you have everything you need, but yet you fail to realize spiritually you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus loving the church here. I want you to understand that. We'll get to that in a little bit. If Jesus doesn't say this, he doesn't love us. He says this, he says in verse 18, I counsel you now, here's what you should focus on. Instead of buying all the stuff from material possessions of the world and wanting to be obsessed with money all the time, I counsel you to buy from me. That's massive. From me, Jesus says. You gotta buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Buy for me white garments. Why? So that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Buy for me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may actually see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That is unbelievable right there, that promise. And then verse 22, who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we, we beg you right now. We beg you right now to work among us. Oh, we need you so much. We need you so much. All of us, Lord, in some way, we are here today to hear this message in some form. All of us have the temptation towards being apathetic and spiritually lukewarm. All of us, Lord, every day are tempted to just indulge ourselves with ourselves, with the things around us, and to say that you are not important. All of us, Lord, are tempted to sing with such a low, weak, meager voice to the praises of our God. All of us, Lord, are so often, Lord, tempted to move away from prayer and dependence and to seek you in your word and to love you, all of us, Lord. This is a word for us today, for me, for us, for this church, for this land. Holy Spirit of God, nothing will happen unless you choose to work. Nothing, nothing of any good will take place here today unless you decide to do it. We beg you, Lord. I pray there's many, many people, hundreds of people, even hearing this right now, who agree with this and say, yes, Lord, please, we beg you to work among us. We beg you to work among us. Your will be done, O Lord. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen? Notice verse 14. Where do we start? We start with our first verse. Where else can we go? This is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen. When this is speaking, every letter of the seven letters begins with the words of, the, word, the words of Christ, the word of God. This is, this is the word of the, of the Holy One. This is the word of the one who can be trusted in all things. So the words of the amen or amen, the words of the amen, Jesus Christ, every promise we have is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen means so be it. Amen means let it be done. So therefore, the one who is speaking is the one that every promise is fulfilled in. Jesus is the amen. If you want to find life, if you want to find truth, again, if you want to find the fulfillment of the promises that are found in Scripture, there's one person this is found in, Jesus Christ. And because he's the amen, his words that are faithful, his words are true, verse 14, the faithful and true witness. <coughs> Excuse me. We can trust him. 
We cannot trust anyone else. We let ourselves down. Our friends let us down. The world lets us down. Jesus Christ will never, ever let us down. Why? He is faithful and he is the true witness. These are his words. Jesus Christ has a word for the church, the amen, the faithful one, the true witness. He is speaking. And then it says this in verse 14, he is the beginning of God's creation. Meaning, he is the ruler of all creation. John 1 says, nothing was made in this world apart from Jesus Christ. Everything that was made was made through him. He is the ruler and the creator of the entire universe. He wrote a book and he's got a word and he wants to speak to us right now. That's why verse 14 is there, to get our attention and say, Jesus Christ, the amen, he is speaking. He has a word. And specifically today, he has a word for the lukewarm. Now, what is his word for the lukewarm? That takes us to our outline, our very important outline. And the first thing Jesus says then today to the lukewarm church and lukewarm believers is this, uh, we must loathe to be lukewarm, point one. We must loathe to be lukewarm. Look at verse 15 now. Jesus says, I know your works. The reason he says that, because he knows everything. There's nothing he does not know. You are neither cold nor hot, church in Laodicea. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, problem, not good, Jesus loathes this, and neither hot nor cold, listen carefully, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now there's so much talk at times of people who want to make Jesus into some fluffy teddy bear of sorts, okay? Uh, they have not read this verse. They have not read these letters. And apparently they have not read the entire Bible uh, either. Uh, Jesus is not wasting mincing words here. Uh, listen to what he's saying. But he's saying it in love. And much has been said about verses 15 and 16 pertaining to the hot and cold water that Jesus refers to. Now what do we know about this? Here's what we know. The city of Laodicea lacked any true healthy water supply. And because they lacked this water supply, they had to pipe water in from adjacent cities, namely Hierapolis and the city of Colossae. Now, Hierapolis had hot water springs that could reach a temperature of 95 degrees. And they would pipe in this hot water from Hierapolis as part of their supply for water in the city of Laodicea. The problem is when you pipe it over several miles, that water starts hot. It will arrive at its location more often than not being lukewarm. They also piped in water from the city, again, as I said, of Colossae. This was cold water. This was refreshing water. But it is, it is suggested that even this water traveling on its way there could also rise in temperature and cease to be cold and could arrive at a place that is lukewarm as well. When Jesus says this example, this illustration, this metaphor, every single person who's reading this letter in Laodicea anywhere near, knows exactly what he's talking about. They all understand the context. They live with it every day. They know what he's trying to say. The point of Jesus here referring to them being lukewarm and the lukewarm water is this. In the end, lukewarm water is disgusting. And Jesus makes that very clear, especially when contrasted with really hot water or really cold water. Hot water can be very helpful. Hot water used for bathing. 
Hot water used for healing. Any single one of us ever been in a hot tub? There's a sense of, ah, it feels pretty good. A lukewarm hot tub, not so great, fair? Not so great, but it's called a hot tub because it's supposed to be hot. Cold water is used for refreshing purposes. Cold water is refreshing. You know when it's a really hot day and you're sweaty or dirty, you come and you're so thirsty, you want, you want water. And you don't want lukewarm water. You want cold water because it's that which tastes so good and so refreshing and feels so healing again. It's life-giving. Almost everyone in this room would much prefer either a very hot drink or a very cold drink. There are very few people, if any, in this room right now where if you had a choice, you would choose lukewarm. I'm not talking room temperature. I'm talking lukewarm. Lukewarm coffee, disgusting. Lukewarm tea, disgusting, in my opinion, hopefully yours as well. Lukewarm water, disgusting for sure in this context right here. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is taking the physical reality of the water that is found in Laodicea and he is now applying it as a metaphor for the spiritual lacking that is happening or the spiritual reality of the church in Laodicea as well. What we have to know about the city of Laodicea, it was very self-sufficient, very wealthy, very self-indulgent, very luxurious. They didn't have a lot of needs outside themselves. In fact, when an earthquake happened and the Roman Empire said, we'll give you money to rebuild it, like, no, we're good. We got it. We got all the money. We're very self-sufficient. See, what happens is, is when the world around you is so self-sufficient, has all this luxury and wealth, the church is within that. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of holiness. It takes a lot of Christ-centered, gospel-minded people to not get sucked into the ways of the world and also become self-sufficient. What is the problem with self-sufficiency? Self-sufficiency leads to self-dependency. And when we are dependent upon self, that means we're not dependent upon God. This was the problem of the church in Laodicea. They depended upon themselves, and therefore, they did not depend on God. This just in, you can't serve both God and money. If we serve money, we will not serve God. It's impossible to do both. The Bible says you cannot serve both God and money. Which one's going to be? Which one is it going to be? It's one or the other, church in Laodicea. It's one or the other, church in Oakville today. We either serve money or we serve God. It cannot be both. This church was serving money. And what happens is when you start to serve money and self and the luxuries of this world, you become self-sufficient. When you become self-sufficient, you become self-dependent. When you become self-dependent, you become proud. And when pride kicks in, God gets kicked out. When we find that we have what we need in self, Self kicks in and the need for God is kicked out. Self-sufficiency dulls our need for God and dulls our need for the gospel itself. This is why Jesus says with such seriousness upon the church in Laodicea, you're lukewarm. And that, in our language today, Jesus says, I want water that refreshes me. You remind me of water that makes me want to puke. That's, that's what he's saying in verses 15 and 16 in our language today. What I see in you right now, church, is what makes me want to vomit. What makes me want to puke. This was Laodicea. Here's the question. Is this us? Is this us? Jesus loathes the lukewarm. And hear me, loved ones. 
we have to loathe the lukewarm too. We have to loathe the lukewarm in us first. This isn't a message right now if you look around at your neighbors and figure out who this applies to the most. This is a message right now to look at your own heart and to look at this church as a whole and just be saying, God, are we suffering from this? Because if we don't loathe it in ourselves, listen, then that proves that we are blind. And what verse 17 becomes, verse 17 is a textbook verse case of spiritual blindness. Look at verse 17. For you say I am rich. You say I have prospered and I need nothing. But what you don't realize, Jesus says, is that you're the opposite. Isn't that so classic? This is what pride does. I'm rich. I'm prosperous. I don't need anything. Jesus is like, uh, uh, check it. Check again, church. You need everything. You don't realize in your spiritual blindness, in your pride, self-dependency, and self-sufficiency that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But the church, they were going around saying, man, we're, we're amazing. We got it going on. We're prosperous. We're wealthy. We're the envy of all the people around us. But Jesus says, I don't care about what's material in you. I don't care about what you have practically. The only thing that actually matters is what you have spiritually and who you are spiritually. You think you have everything, but in the end you have nothing. The spiritual reality is you are dirt poor. Spiritually you are wretches. You have nothing. You're walking around all your clothes, but spiritually you are naked. And the shame is there, but you just can't see it. You know what's happening right here? Jesus is showing here the indicators of what it means to be lukewarm. You think one thing, but you have no clue about the reality of the other. These are indicators I want to unpack right now for us right here. I got, I got seven sides of, of lukewarm living on the screen here. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just helpful for us just to, what are the indicators based on the church of Laodicea that there's lukewarm evidences within our lives? The first one is the most important one to me. It's this, number one, a sign that I'm lukewarm is I'm spiritually content. Now, hear me here. Material contentment, good, very good. Um, I don't need more. Christ has given me what I need. Materially, but spiritual contentment is disastrous. Spiritual contentment in the, the lukewarm person church is like, no, man, we're good, man, we're fine. We don't need to pray anymore. We're, we're, we're just relaxed. Everything's going great. We don't need to press into the Lord. I'm not hungry for the word. I'm not seeking to, again, seek God in prayer. I, I, don't, I don't really need to desire it anymore because we're just kind of status quo, coasting, put it in neutral, put our feet up, lay back, get our fluffy spiritual pillow out, and just, and just, just ride the days and see what happens. It's great. There's no hunger, there's no passion. There's apathetic or apathy, complacency, and lethargy. That's this. That's a sign that we're lukewarm. If we are spiritually content that we don't need to grow, disastrous upon the Christian life. Second sign that I'm lukewarm. I love the world more than I love the word. In this case, the word is Jesus. And how do we find Jesus? In the word. And this is so basic, but this is what this, this is the church of Laodicea. We have everything. We're prosperous. We have gold. We have clothing. We have physical healing. We're not interested, though, in Christ. Problem, problem. We've got to look at ourselves and say, what do I really value right now? What do I think about? What do I long for? What are my motivations? I love the world more than I love 
the word. Just, just simply do a time check of how you spend your thoughts and your practical time, and that'll show you what you and what I really love. Thirdly, sign of lukewarm. Uh, money uh, moves my motives. So um, because I value this more than I value Jesus, well, then this starts to run my life. Where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Find your treasure, find your heart. Find your heart, find your treasure. What we treasure is where our heart is at. Now, interestingly here, the lukewarm person often gives the least because this is their treasure. And because they're lukewarm, they don't see the gospel, they don't see the value of the kingdom of heaven, they don't give to it. They throw a couple bucks in the plate every now and then, and that's it. That's a sign, that's a sign we are lukewarm. There's a lack of generosity for the things of God, the things that actually matter. And because I matter more than Jesus, and I want my kingdom more than God's kingdom, I don't give to his kingdom. I hoard it for myself, because I'm lukewarm. And Jesus says, you make me want to puke. Not my words. Fourth sign. Prayer is foreign to me in my life. When I don't need God, I'm not going to pray to Him. The, the lukewarm, they will pray when crisis hits or when they feel real desperate. Save me from this. Take away this pain. Remove you from this trial. But then when things go good again, ah, I'm fine, I'm good. And prayer just dissipates throughout their life. It's foreign. There's no sense of need or urgency because we're lukewarm. Fifthly, um, I don't share my faith with others. The lukewarm person has no urgency for the gospel, so the lukewarm person just says there isn't a need to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to be liked. I don't want to be opposed. I, I don't want to take risks. I, I, I like being accepted by man. I, I don't see the fear of God. I see the fear of man. And so this then becomes a real problem, which is a sign that there's lukewarm indicators in my life. Number six, um, I'm indifferent to sin. A sign of lukewarm living is I have sin in my life, but frankly, I just don't care. I just don't care. I don't have a fear of God when it comes to the things I look at, how I talk, uh, uh, the way I live. I know I got sin, but to be honest, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's a big deal to God, but it's not a big deal to me. Lukewarm church, lukewarm church doesn't say it as it needs to be said, doesn't go after the sin that needs to be going after, just kind of is appeasing culture, uh, doesn't deal with things directly. That's the lukewarm church. That's a lukewarm family. That's a lukewarm individual. Here's a seventh sign that I'm lukewarm in my uh, life. Uh, it's this. Um, uh, this list is really bugging me right now. And the reason this list bugs the lukewarm person is because don't tell me I'm not spiritually good. Don't tell me who I need to be. Don't tell me how to give. Don't tell me anything, pastor. Get out of my head. And because we don't want to change, don't disturb me. I'm good. Don't bug me. I want to live my life the way I, I want to come to church and do a couple of things and then go home and be who I want to be. Don't tell me who I need to be. Stop bugging me. And that's important right now because if you're sitting here right now and you are bugged, and we're going to hear in, in a few minutes, man, the greatest beginnings of leaving the lukewarm life is to admit that you've been there. It's to admit that this has been a sin of your heart, of our hearts. See, love, this is why we must loathe to be lukewarm. Because lukewarm living is killing the church. All our money, all our luxury, all our ease, all our comfort, all our pursuit of the world in Laodicea and here right now, when we're pursuing the world, how do we have any room to pursue Christ? And when this is happening... When we're pursuing the world and not Christ, what has happened is we have lost sight of the gospel. 
We don't value the gospel. We don't care enough that Christ has lived a perfect life, died a horrific death, suffered the wrath of God, was raised from the dead, has ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now, and will come again one day to judge the living and the dead and to gather his people. But that really isn't something that's important to us because we prove it with how we live. When the gospel is forgotten, apathy sets in. When the gospel is remembered, when the gospel is lived, when the gospel is seen, Christ is worshipped. Passion then is a result. And this is the indictment and the plague upon again the church of this land and in this society. There's so much focus on self, there's hardly any room for Christ. But when we understand the gospel truly, we cannot stop the zeal. Let me put up two quotes here. The first one is from Vance Havner. Don't ever underestimate the devastation of lukewarm believers, lukewarm people. The cause of Christ has been hurt more by Sunday morning bench warmers who pretend to love Christ, who call him Lord, but don't do his commands, than by all the publicans and sinners combined. The church is so hurt by those who sit here and look like something, but in, in reality live something else. But let's not ever underestimate the power of passion in the church. Here's a quote by J.C. Ryle. He said this, Nothing is so effective in keeping true Christianity alive as the yeast of zealous Christians scattered throughout the church. Think about that. I love that quote. Nothing is so effective as the passion and zeal in Christians in keeping the church alive. Think about any, any great man or woman for God over time. This was their secret. Irrefutable irrefutable like salt these zealous Christians they prevent the whole body from falling into a state of decay no one but men of this kind can revive churches that are about to die that is so true it is impossible to overestimate the debt that all Christians owe to zeal it's impossible Ryle says to overestimate the debt that Christians owe to men and women who refuse to fall to apathy and lethargy. God, help us wake up. Help us wake up for the love of God. For the love of God. Are you sitting here right now and you've been asleep for too long? God, help us wake up. The starting point, though, is to, is to loathe to be lukewarm. If we're good with it, then we're done. We've got to hate it. God, give us grace to see your, your glory and our need for you. This takes us to point number two now. So what do we do? Well, we need to do this. We must, we must buy what is best. We must buy what is best. If you look at verse 18 now, so here's Jesus' response. Jesus diagnoses the situation in Laodicea. He says the problem is lukewarm. What you don't realize is that you're actually dead. You you don't have things going, but, said, but now, though, in love, here's, here's what you got to do. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. I counsel you, buy from me white garments that your shame might be covered. I counsel you, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes 
that you might truly see. So notice here, Jesus says, buy for me gold, buy for me clothing, buy for me salve for your eyes. Isn't it interesting in the city of Laodicea, three main areas of prosperity and distinction. They were a wealthy banking center. They were famous for fashion, specifically fashion in black wool garments. And thirdly, Ancient sources say that they were famous for their medical school where they had eye doctors that produced this eye salve that was used to promote physical eye healing. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know what you got going on in Laodicea. I know you got money. I know you got fashion. I know you got physical ointment for healing of certain sorts that's made you all the, all the rage. He's like, but I want to tell you what to really buy. You want to find life? I'll tell you what to really buy. And so he says this, he says, I counsel you. He says, here's my consumer advice to you, church. Let me tell you what I know is to be true and right. I want you to buy this. Isn't this a, this is a good verse for us right now, being in the month of December. The highest spending month of the year is in December for obvious reasons. Here's what I want you to think about. This is just an important process and activity to do as we reflect upon all the shopping we've done in the past several weeks and maybe the shopping that has still yet to be done this week. Not against it, not against it, as long as it's not idolatrous, as long as our hearts aren't captured by it. This is the whole reason I'm asking this question right now. I want you to sit down and say all the things we've spent money on, what have we bought, what have we purchased, what have we really gained by purchasing these things? What value ultimately is there in the effort, the money, and the things that we have done? Does my family get Christmas gifts? Yes, we do. I enjoy it. It's something, I'm not, a, I'm not against it, okay? But one of the things, though, that we have to realize is, and I will confess this to you, is that in recent years, more and more, when the presents are open, and we had some presents open just yesterday in our family because of different timing and stuff like that, the amazing thing is there's this anticipation and hype, and you open the presents, it is fun, but I'm telling you, five or ten minutes after, I have this increasingly empty feeling. Because what I know is there's excitement, and it won't last, these things cannot satisfy. And there's a sense of it's, 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 it's fine. It's, I'm not trying to be Scrooge, okay? Okay, I'm not, I'm not, okay? I'm not, I'm not. I'm not, because we do this too. We're doing it again today at my parents' house, okay? okay? It's fine. It's just, it's just not the answer. It's not the answer. Because in the end, it won't, it just, it leaves us, so I'm just asking us right now, what are we buying, but what have we really gained? And the answer is, spiritually, virtually all the time, we've gained nothing. It might be okay. Enjoyment, loving people. I get all that. I, I get all of that. But this is the point. Jesus says, you want to buy something? You got your Christmas gifts, but let me, let me tell you what really lasts. I buy what's best. He says, buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. So there's the gold of the world, but then there's the gold of Jesus. This gold is refined by fire, meaning it's going to cost you something. I mean, it's, it's going to cost self. Because you've got to lose your life to find it. But he's like, but i got some gold, man. And you want to be really rich? You want to find out where true riches lie? Buy from me, Jesus. You can't get this elsewhere. He says, buy from me. Now that's a test of faith right there. This is a test of the maturity in the Christian life. Do I believe that Jesus holds the greatest riches ever that makes everything in the world look so dumb and gross and bleh? 
Jesus Christ is the rich one. He is the one who holds all riches. And he says, buy from me this gold. This gold is his life. This gold is his death. This gold is his resurrection. This gold is the gospel. But the lukewarm person doesn't value that gold from Christ. The lukewarm person hears it right now, but says, yeah, I'd rather have the gold of this world. And Jesus says, you make me want to puke. Not my words. So are we more excited about money this Christmas? Or are we more excited about Jesus? I mean, just be honest. It's you and the Lord. It's me and the Lord right now. He, he knows our hearts perfectly. Let's just be honest. What are we really motivated by right now? Money, gifts, or is it Jesus? Do we think money's the answer? Do we think earthly gold is the answer? The Laodiceans did. Faith says Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Then Jesus says in verse 18, he says, I want you to buy for me gold. Then he says, I want you to buy for me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So this is interesting, okay? So the Laodicean city was fashion obsessed and particularly famous for making these garments of black uh, wool-produced garments, now, this is where I find God's words are so supernatural. 1,900 years ago, you have this letter written to that city in Laodicea, a fashion-obsessed society where they were so concerned of buying all these clothes and all these garments. You take the word of God, you go 1,900 years later, you place it in a country like Canada, in a continent like North America, and in our society, and it applies just as much now, of course, as it did then. Did you know, just a, a, a side note, there are over 40,000 women clothing stores across North America? Uh, 40,000 women, just women, not even counting men clothing stores. Uh, 40,000, what does that say? To me, it says a lot. It says that we're obsessed. In Laodicea, they clothe the people in black. I just want you to see a little bit of the inside the metaphor here. You want to buy black garments, I'll give you white garments. The world covers us in shame. Jesus covers us in righteousness. We can live our lives trying to cover ourselves with the methods of the world. Now, one of the ways we do that too, one of the ways that we try to do that is we try to dress ourselves up and make ourselves look all pretty in order to try to cover our insecurities and cover, in a sense, our own sin by putting on a bunch of stuff on the outside that's trying to cover the reality of the inside. That's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. He's like, you buy all these clothes, you're so obsessed with this, but buy from me white garments that your shame might be covered. Adam and Eve had no shame until they sinned. God had to kill an animal, animal skins to cover their sin that their shame might be covered. I mean, we're no different. We need the blood of Jesus Christ to cover our shame spiritually. But that what happens is, as we attempt so much to cover ourselves with physical material things, and in this case specifically clothes, and we think our wardrobes are more important than our spiritual pursuit of Christ. This is the church of Laodicea. They were obsessed with this. And they were neglecting Jesus Christ. I need to ask this question. I have, it's, just, it's so right here in the text. I need to ask it here right now. Do we spend more time, money, anxiety over our physical clothing and appearance than our spiritual appearance? Do we spend more time? And again, it's just, it's just a question between us and the Lord. Do we spend more time 
focusing and thinking about, worrying about, spending on our physical appearance more than our spiritual appearance. If, okay, bottom line, if we are more concerned with our physical appearance than our spiritual appearance, we are lukewarm. Right there, right there. Case closed. We are lukewarm. If we spend more time thinking about it, money on it, because it means that we lack wisdom. God help us. Wisdom says, I'm not against looking nice. I'm not against presenting yourself appropriately. I think there's great virtue in that, to be honest. I love when my wife looks beautiful. I love it. But if that's her identity and her value, that's idolatry. If that's my identity and my value, that's idolatry. That is, that is a symptoms of lukewarm activity happening in my heart. And Jesus is not good with that. And then he says this in verse 18. He says, you want to buy from me? Uh, buy from me salve. Salve is a healing ointment. Uh, to anoint your eyes that you may see. So the medical school in Laodicea in the first century, again, these uh, eye doctors with this eye salve, and they were famous for it. Jesus is like, yeah, you want to see physically? How about you see spiritually? You buy from me, Jesus says, and you will see spiritually. I love that so much. And when we buy the salve from Jesus, we see for eternity. What's the difference of seeing Jesus? Everything. This is Christmas, man. This is why the shepherds ran. They saw. They got the spiritual salve. This is why the angels sang. They saw. This is why Mary rejoiced. She saw. This is why the wise men bowed down. They saw. They all saw. They saw Jesus. They saw spiritually. They saw for eternity. They saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they bought from Jesus gold, salve, white garments. And they were truly rich. Loved ones, what are we buying? The question is, are we buying the best? Hey, hey, make sure you know this. This stuff Jesus is selling... You can't find it in stores, man. It's not sold in stores, okay? And it's actually bought without money. It's by grace through faith. All of this is by grace through faith for the glory of God. We must buy what is best. Thirdly then, I want you to see this. We must learn what is love. We must learn what is love. Look at verse 19 now, okay? So I want you to see what's happening here in this amazing text, okay? Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous in um, and, and repent, okay? So watch the flow of the text. Watch the love of Christ upon the church then, upon the church now, okay? So watch what happened here. We often think that love is grace, Love is grace, but love is not only grace. Love is also truth. So what Jesus is doing in verses 15 to 17 and 18, that's love. It's tough love, but it's love. It's love and truth. It's love and truth. And now he says, those whom I love, I reprove. If we are loved by Christ, we will be reproved. We will be rebuked at times. We will be disciplined. And the response there, he says, be zealous and repent. The point that I need us to see, the love of Jesus Christ, we have to look at our lives and admit that possibly some of our greatest trials are forms of Christ's greatest love upon us. We have to be able to see that at times and admit that. I'll say it again. Some of our greatest trials might possibly be some of God's greatest love upon our lives. 
Because he lets us go through trials to get our hearts that we turn from sin, that we are no longer lukewarm, that we pursue him in love and affection with zeal and passion. Are we wise enough right now to look upon our lives and to recognize the moments where we have been disciplined, rebuked, reproved, because God wants to see more glory through our lives? And for some of us, that is happening even right now. Forms of trials have come upon us. Why? Ultimately, Jesus says, I want you to be zealous and repent. Notice the common zealous here is a word that's in the Greek. It's tied to the word hot in verses 15 and 16. Zealousness is Jesus like, I want you to be fired up, man. I want you to be hot for the things of the gospel for me. Notice this. Notice the combination of passion and repentance. So you're here right now, and if you have been lukewarm or you've had situations like this where as a church we find the first step to leaving the lukewarm life is repentance. Do you see that? Do you see that? The first step of leaving the lukewarm life is be zealous and repent. The first thing I have to do is to repent of the fact that I have been lukewarm. The lukewarm person says, I don't want to repent. That's fine. But the person who wants to see a vibrancy for the Lord and the Spirit of God is working in, they say, no, I see it. Admit we've been there. I repent of that. Take me from this, Lord, and lead me to higher ground of pursuit of you and love for you. The first step of true passion is repentance, always. And then notice verse 20. See, now, I want you to see this, okay? What is the love of Christ in rebuke the love of Christ in discipline, the love of Christ in calling us to repentance, but now we see the love of Christ in grace in verse 20, an invitation. Jesus is so amazing. There's so much truth in the beginning, and now there's so much grace. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door, and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Jesus is knocking, but he won't force his way in. He waits to be invited. An invitation of what? Invitation of intimacy, of fellowship. An invitation of the presence of God. I want you to see here the love of Christ. I want you to see it. I want you to hear him right now. See, the reason he rebukes us is ultimately to love us and then to love us by inviting us to something so much greater. How many of us right now are being invited by the Lord or knocked on our door that we might then invite him in as a church, as families, as individuals. You know, much has been made of verse 20 and the context of verse 20 being the church. So uh, different pastors have stood up different times and, and preached verse 20 as an invitation for individuals. And so much as some of you feel strongly about this too, well, the context is the church. The context is the church. Invitation to the church. Yes, that's true. But the church, last time I checked, was made up of individuals. And it says here, if anyone... If anyone hears my voice and invites me in. So I think it's both. I think it's a, the context is the church. But the church is made up of individuals. And, you know, I'm a little bit biased too because both my grandmother and my great aunt were saved as a pastor preached on Revelation 3.20. So regardless of what you think the exact context is, Jesus can obviously still use this to see people ushered into the kingdom. Praise God. All right? And I want to introduce you to my grandmother and to um, her sister, Jocelyn, okay? They're both right now in heaven with the Lord. They're having a very good day, okay? 
and they are wonderful women of God. So this is, this is Granny Simons. This is, this is my dad's mom, uh, Jocelyn Simons. And uh, she was married to a pastor for decades. God bless her, all right? Anyone who can do that, they deserve a medal, all right? And then my Auntie Vaughn here, she, uh, both of these women love the Lord so much. And my Auntie Vaughn, she was married to a man called Stacy Woods. He was one of the founders of InterVarsity International, okay? He was, if you read some Christian Bible books, he'll show up. And she was married to him, and he was like, man, he was one of these strong leaders that just so, st- her, <laughs> she was, she is one of the most remarkable women I've, I've ever met, to be honest. And just her testimony, and bless these two together, uh, two years apart, and they were saved as such a, both of them, I'm going to read you the story a little bit. So my Auntie Vaughn, she wrote down uh, some memoirs of what happened when they were both saved. I want to read it to you, just because I, I just believe God led me to do this this week, to be an encouragement. Who knows here, who's here right now? And the Lord's knocking on your door. And uh, maybe he's been knocking for years. And so my Auntie Yvonne, she wrote this down in her memoir. She says, One Sunday our pastor spoke in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. And she says, It was this verse that inspired Holman Hunt's famous painting, The Light of the World. Some of you maybe know what that is. This is a um, painting where it's interesting. The door has no handle on the outside, but Jesus is knocking on the outside and waiting for the door to be opened from the inside. Uh, Yvonne wrote down, she wrote this, she said, that Sunday evening when mother came to me by my bedside to say goodnight, I asked her, is the Lord Jesus really standing outside the door of my heart? She replied, yes, and he is a perfect gentleman. He will never force his way in. He waits until you open the door. And then she added, why don't you invite him in? I'm gonna go say goodnight to your sister. Think about it, and I'll return. Then she went into Jocelyn, that's my, that's granny. It was to the exact same question. Both of us that night, so my Grandma Jocelyn was nine years old and Yvonne was 11 years old. They did invite the Lord Jesus into their hearts. And when I told mother I had, quote, done it, but did not feel any difference, she answered me again, the Lord is a perfect gentleman. I can just hear her saying that. That's awesome. When he makes a promise, he always keeps it. He promised to come in. So if you invited him in, he has entered and you will know it. Both Jocelyn and I counted that evening as the pivotal moment of our conversion and we never wavered nor withdrew our decision, and both of them would live as followers of Jesus Christ for 70 and 80 plus years for the gospel. Amen. 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 Jesus is knocking right now, and there's an invitation to the eternal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's an invitation to his presence now. I believe this is an invitation here an invitation of intimacy to individuals, an invitation to this church as well. What happens? The lukewarm shut out his presence. The lukewarm have no need for the presence of God. But the broken and the humble and the contrite, they fling that door so wide open and say, come, I need you desperately. I need you to come and dine with me forever. The church that is broken and humble it's the church that flings the door open as wide as they possibly can and say, please, God, please come dwell with us. Loved ones, as long as we are self-reliant, we will be Holy Spirit resistant. Hear that again. As long as we are self-reliant, we will be Holy Spirit resistant. No thanks. Jesus is knocking. Oh, church, let's welcome him in. Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. I appeal to you today, in the name of Jesus Christ, you have been lukewarm. You have been hard-hearted. 
the first thing that we do is we repent. We admit that we have been. And we run. And we turn. And we love the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, remember, He knocks. We must open. We must open. He is a perfect gentleman. And He will not force His way in. But He asks you. He knocks for you, for me, for us as a church. Because He loves us. Because He will not leave us. See, in the person who does this, I want you to look at the final verse here. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who conquered is saved in Jesus Christ. This is the one who invites Jesus in to dine with him, to sup with him, to have fellowship with him. Notice Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Sit on the throne with Christ as also I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne? I want you to see as, as, as difficult as this text is where Jesus says you make me want to puke one of the most severe rebukes in Scripture with one of the most greatest rewards in Scripture. As hard as he is at one, he is so now kind and so gracious and so generous that he says if you repent from your sin and you open the door to me that I will grant you the greatest possible reward you could ever think of. You will sit with me on my throne as you turn from your sin and you know that I am God, I am Jesus Christ, and I have lived and died and rose again. This is what's offered to the person who turns from apathy and lethargy and self and world and money and clothing and physical pursuits and chooses to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he offers. Listen, you won't find that in the world. The world can offer you no such thing. The world offers you temporary pleasure that leads to death. Jesus Christ offers you a temporary cost that leads to eternal life and the riches you can't possibly fathom for all of eternity in him again. His glory shine down upon you forever and ever. Amen. This is the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. This is what we're called to live. And the last verse says, do you have ears to hear? Do you hear what the Spirit of God is saying? Will you repent? Will we repent that we may usher in the presence of God upon our lives even now? And that will only happen by the Spirit and the grace of God. And so we beg Him. And so we beg Him.